We thank you, Father, for that grace. We thank you for your grace in giving us your word. We thank you for bringing us together this morning to study it so that we all know what we all know, can hold each other accountable, can pray for each other, can encourage each other to remember and obey your word. We pray that you would help us to understand. We pray that you would help us to rightly apply. We pray that you would work in us through your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would single out any one thing that the Corinthians really needed to learn, that they really needed to know, that they really needed to be encouraged and pushed to apply, we could maybe say that it's in that one word, love. It has come up so many times and has been emphasized so strongly by that repetition as we have gone through uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. And we are now at the end of this letter from Paul to the church in Corinth. And I want to back up for just a little bit to the last verse that we looked at last week, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. I hope that you had some time to think about that this last week. If you didn't, you need to. You need to think about this command. Let all that you do be done in love. This is... Something that we, we all need to think about a lot. We need to test ourselves in this. Look at your life. Are you doing this? Where do you need to improve? What changes do you need to make? Let all that you do be done in love. And Jesus said, the great and foremost commandment is... You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So in everything about our relationship with God, the right thing to do is to love him above everything else. With all your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, that is always the right thing to do. Love God above everything else. Then, always, the right thing to do is to love your neighbor. In every relationship you have, any question there is about what to do, what to say, how to think, how to respond, always the right answer is love. So 
So in every decision we ever make in life, there are two grids that every decision should be strained through. First, which option is best in line with love for God? And then, which option will most show love for my neighbor? And Jesus says that that basically covers everything that God requires. Love for God above all else. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, obviously, we haven't done it. We've failed. We have sinned. If you think back over the past week, we could probably all find instances when we have failed. If you look back to this morning, it's not very late in the day yet. We could probably all find instances when we have failed. We have put something else above God in importance. We have thought of ourselves above somebody else. We failed to show the love that we've been commanded to show. And that is why we are fully dependent on God's love that he has shown to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that we could be forgiven for all of those times when we have failed to love. By God's grace, through faith in Christ, and we are forgiven because of His love. But still, that is our standard. That is God's requirement. Not to get saved, but because we have been saved, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John chapter 14, verse 15. So there again, Love is the standard. That is our standard. Love for God above all else. Love for our neighbor as ourself. Last week I mentioned that we have a perfect example of the love that we are to have for others in the love that was shown to us in Christ when He willingly went to the cross and He took the place of his enemies, including us, to die there so that we could have life. And that is the perfect example, that is the standard of the love that we are to have. Let all that you do be done in love. Now, that is an impossibly high bar that has been set. We've failed. We continue to fail. So do, do we just give up? Does that mean there is no hope? Well, we have this command here, verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. This is a command for us as Christians, as those who have failed and recognize that we have failed and repented and put our trust in Jesus Christ alone. Now you let all that you do be done in love. How do you do that? How are you going to do that today? As you make your plans for the week ahead, how are you going to carry that out? Let all that you do be done in love. Probably, you're not going to have to make the decision 
to let yourself be killed to save someone else's life. You never know. It happens. But probably not this week. So what about just in your relatively ordinary life? How are you going to put this into practice? Let all that you do be done in love. Well, that's what we find in chapter 16, verses 15 through 24. Now, this is another one of those places I pointed out a couple weeks ago that if you're reading through the book of 1 Corinthians, when you get here, you're tempted to either stop or just skim through, get through it quickly, because it's, it's just talking about some people that we don't know. And it seems like there's really nothing here that applies to us. Have you ever met Stephanus? You know that you know the guy, or Fortunatus, or Caiacus, the friends of yours. And we don't know them. We don't know the things that they did. What what possible reason could there be for us to talk about these men who lived and died almost two thousand years ago? Well, what we have here, if we look closely, is actually some very practical teaching through lives that are given as examples about how we can do all that we do in love in our everyday lives. And look at verse 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 15. Now I urge you, brethren... What he's going to urge them to do doesn't come until the next verse. He says, you know, the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. Paul says, you know, of the household of Stephanus. We don't know the household of Stephanus. Seems like we're missing out on... uh, pretty important part of the story here but notice what we do know and what we do know is the important part they were this little bit of background of them they were some of the first in the region of of Athens and Corinth the southern Greece that put their trust fully in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation everybody in that family were among the first in that area, put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and were saved from their sins. Uh, They were some of the very few that Paul could remember baptizing when he was in Corinth, back in chapter 1, verse 16. Uh, He couldn't remember very many. He didn't baptize very many. But there was that one family, the, the household of Stephanus, Uh, He knew that he would only be there for a short time. He was there with a specific mission. And baptism is important, but that wasn't the priority at the time. He was there to preach the gospel. So he didn't baptize very many. But that household was one that he could remember he did. Then what did this family do? Where did they go from there? He says here in verse 15, they devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. 
If you have a King James Version, it's kind of interesting how it states that in that verse. It says they addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. Now think about that. Think about this family. They addicted themselves or devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. What does that tell us about that family? When you think about an addiction, you hear about it, it's almost always in a, a negative sense. These people were addicted to the ministry of the saints. They just couldn't get enough of it. They couldn't stop themselves. This tells us that they were servants. It's a very important thing that we learn about the household of Stephanus. They were servants. Anything they could find to do of service for someone in the body of Christ, they would do it. There was nobody that was below them. There was no work that was beneath them that they saw themselves as being too good for. They were servants. You notice in what he says that they didn't wait to be asked. They devoted themselves. They took the initiative. They found ways of serving and they did it. They weren't appointed by somebody. They weren't put on a committee. They decided as a family, whatever we can find that needs to be done, that would be beneficial for our brothers and sisters in Christ that we can do, we're going to do it. Now this is a family that was shaped around ministry to the saints. Were those lives wasted? Now, we don't know, but there were probably some young people in that household. Um, this was a, a household. It wasn't like who we'll read of later of Aquila and Priscilla. It was just the two of them. This was a household. Probably some young people. Old enough to be in on the decision because it was everybody in the household that made the decision to devote themselves for ministry. But this whole family, their lives revolved around this purpose. To be servants of the body of Christ. Now today... There's many families revolve around the kids. Every decision that is made is made in respect to what will make the kids happy. What do the kids want? Some families make decisions in respect to putting their kids in the best possible position for a successful life. And everything else comes after that. Some families shape their family around making money. Sometimes the kids are pushed off to the side in those situations. You've got to make money as much as possible. Some families are 
shaped by trying to avoid work. Just do what's fun. Do what makes us happy. But this was a family. The family revolved around serving the Lord by serving the saints. Now, they had to make some sacrifices to do that. There were some things that maybe the kids wanted to do that they didn't do. Because we are devoting ourselves to serving the saints. So, again, were those lives wasted? Did they make the wrong decision? They didn't. And we know because what it says here in Scripture. Now notice, almost 2,000 years later, what still matters about that family? How much money did they make? We don't know. We don't have a clue. What business did the kids go into? We don't know. We don't have a clue about that. But what has been preserved for our learning for all of these years, what made it into the eternal word of God that never passes away, is that this family served the saints. And it will matter for eternity that this family served the saints because they were storing up treasures in heaven while they did it. Whatever treasure they had on this earth or didn't have, it's been long gone and forgotten. But what goes on forever, both in God's word and through whatever they stored up in heaven through doing it, was that they served the saints. So those are lives that are far from being wasted. They did something that mattered. They may have had to give up a lot of comforts of this life in order to do it. But they did something that mattered. This was a family that did all that they did in love. They are being held up as an example of someone who is obedient to verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. The household of Stephanus did that. And far from their lives being wasted, Paul says these are lives that should be followed. Look at verse 16. This is where he gets to what he is urging them to do. That you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. Now, he is saying that if you find someone who has devoted themselves to ministry, devoted themselves to serving the saints, put yourself under them. Be in subjection to people like that. Learn what they're doing. If this is someone, if you find someone who has devoted themselves to serving the saints, that's someone who you want to disciple you. So ask them, would you please teach me to do what you're doing? Because you're doing the right thing. This is someone who is going to lead you in the right direction. 
Now, we don't know anything about any titles in this household. We don't know anything about any official positions that anyone had. But what we know about them is that they helped in the work. He doesn't say any specific ways that they helped. But they just helped. Whatever they could find to do to help in the work. Gospel ministry. Teaching God's word to God's people. In whatever capacity they could. They served the saints. And it even says that they wore themselves out doing it. The word labors means working to the point of exhaustion. They wore themselves out serving the saints. Paul says, follow them. If you find someone that's doing that, follow them because they're going in the right direction. The next two verses, uh, we find another indicator that Stephanus was doing what he did in love. Because Paul, the apostle, think about this. Paul was the one that everyone expected to go around serve everybody else. But Stephanus went and served Paul by being a refreshment to Paul, being an encouragement to him. Look at verses 17 and 18. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have supplied what was lacking on your part, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. As we find here in these verses that Stephanus and Fortunatus, whose name means fortunate or lucky, and it was a common name for freed slaves. It tells us just in his name a little about who he was. And also Achaicus, whose name means someone from Achaia. His parents didn't have very much imagination, apparently. <laughs> Who's that? He's the guy from Achaicus, or from Achaia. That's Achaicus. It was also a common name for slaves. And tells us a little about him. Maybe these two individuals were a part of the household of Stephanus. We don't know. But could be that they were slaves. And he freed them. They attached themselves to that family somehow. And they were in on this. Being servants to the saints. Maybe they came on their own along with Stephanus. We don't know for sure. But they came to Ephesus. Paul... We have seen when he was in Ephesus, he wrote this letter, he had a hard time there. There was a lot of opposition. And these men came, it seems that they were sent as a delegation from the church in Corinth, uh, probably brought the letter with them that the church in Corinth sent to Paul. These men uh, probably delivered it. The whole church couldn't be there. The church in Corinth, not all of them could come. And that's probably what he means by that they supplied what was lacking on your part. I know you all couldn't be here. But they're here as your representatives. And these men 
refreshed Paul's spirit. And think about that. Think about what these men did for Paul. Can you think of a time in your life? Maybe you have been going through a a rough patch. Maybe you've run into an old Christian friend. And after that fellowship that you have with that old friend, you feel feel refreshed. You got a, a new outlook on life. They encouraged you, gave you hope. Maybe there's been a time in your life when you met somebody new. Didn't know them before. You just meet up somehow and you find out, hey, they're a Christian. Never knew them before, but now they're your brother. And it's that common bond that you have in Christ. It's it's just refreshing to meet that person. Maybe it's been a a missionary speaker. You hear them talk about some of the struggles that they've had, but you see that they're being faithful. They're pressing on. You see what God is doing in all kinds of places in this world, and it's it's refreshing for you to hear it. Or maybe you have a friend that they always know how to encourage you. Paul says... Acknowledge a person like that. I don't think he's talking about put a plaque up on the wall. Give him a round of applause. I think he's talking about notice them. Pay attention to that person. Pay attention to what it is that they do that refreshes you. And do that for other people. That's how you should acknowledge them. Notice what they do and learn from them so you can do it for other people. So to do what we do from a position of love and obedience to verse 14, instead of being a negative, complaining, critical, draining person to others, seek to be a refresher. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't share our burdens with others. It doesn't mean that we can't share our struggles with others. We are to bear each other's burdens, and we can't do that if we don't know what the burdens are. In order to be a refresher, we don't have to pretend that everything in our life is perfect. But it does mean that we shouldn't be self-focused. We should be... Searching for what we can do for other people. Finding ways of being an encouragement to other people. Be a refresher. There are some other ways that we can show love. and Examples that we see. Verse 19 and 20. Very simple way. It says, the churches in Asia greet you. Aquila and Prisca greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, everyone from these other churches, even people who are far away, 
people who they had never met. They wanted them to know, you there in Corinth, and we're with you. We care about you. They wanted to get in on the greeting from this letter from Paul. You're not alone. And then there's Aquila and Prisca. You probably know them more commonly as Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, Prisca is just the shortened form of Priscilla, like Edward and Ed. Um, Priscilla probably introduced herself to people as my friends call me Prisca. Paul was a friend. He called her Prisca. Now, if we did a study on everything that we know about Aquila and Priscilla from the Bible, it would be a short study. But it would be one that would teach us a lot about what it means to do what we do in love. This was a couple who lived that kind of life. Paul met them in Corinth. He stayed with them while he was there. Uh, They were all tent makers. They had that in common. They were able to help each other out in that. Now, it was either then when Paul met them in Corinth or when they were in Rome before that, as we find out that they had been in Rome, they got kicked out when all the Jews got kicked out of Rome. They were Jews. They went to Corinth. And it was either there in Rome or when they met Paul in Corinth, they got saved. And then everything else that we know about them is that they were servants. They went with Paul to Ephesus after he left from Corinth and helped him get the church started and going there in Ephesus. The church met in their house. After Paul left Ephesus the first time, before he came back later, Aquila and Priscilla stayed and they met Apollos. Now, Apollos was that great preacher that the Corinthians loved so much. But when they met him, he was a great speaker, but he only knew the gospel up to John the Baptist. They didn't know about Jesus Christ dying on the cross, being buried and rising from the dead. Apollos didn't. And so Aquila and Priscilla took him into their home under their wing and taught him the rest of the gospel that he needed to know. Apollos went out from their home as a mighty servant for the Lord. In the book of Romans, we find that Aquila and Priscilla eventually wound up back in Rome when it was clear for Jews to go back. And when they were in Rome, the church there was meeting in their house. Again, everywhere they went, they were hospitable people. We find there in Romans that at some point they really risked their lives to help Paul. We don't know anything else about them. We don't know anything about their financial status, their status in society. What we know about them, what sticks out so strongly about them in Scripture, they were servants. And here we see that they cared about the people in Corinth. They heartily greet them and want them to know about their concern. All the brethren, he says in verse 20, all the brethren, we're here with you. We care about you. Even as difficult of a church as this was, they wanted to get their greeting in. 
we're with you. Now Paul says to the Corinthians, it's your turn. Greet one another with a holy kiss. There's the one you've been waiting for, right? (laughs) What do you do with that? Greet one another with a holy kiss. Well, hopefully, you know me well enough to know that if we come across something in Scripture that is hard or I don't like, I don't just pass it off as saying, well, that's cultural. It doesn't apply to us. And I, I don't do that. I try not to do that. I don't want to do that. I'm going to be honest with you. This is a command I don't like. <laughs> I don't know that I want to be on the giving or receiving end of this command. <laughs> what do you do? Well, again, being honest, I do think that there is a part of this that's cultural. Okay, now I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but what's the overall point of this? What's he getting at? The overall point is show love for each other, care about each other. So for them, considering everything we've seen in this letter, instead of stabbing each other in the back, and bickering with each other and continually fighting, instead of taking each other to court and fighting over nonsense in a culturally fitting way, show that you care about each other. And that was how they did that in the culture. If you were in France, they do similar things. Not real American. But in some places, that's still the fitting way of greeting each other. So, when you see your brother or sister in Christ, what do you do? Suppose you've had a disagreement with them. Suppose you see some things differently. Your paths cross. What do you do? That was the case for a lot of people in the church in Corinth. A lot of headbutting going on there. Paul says, stop that. When you see each other, greet each other with a holy kiss. What do you do? You come across a brother or sister in Christ. Maybe it's someone you've had a disagreement with. What do you do? You scowl at them? Ignore them? Go the other way? No, Paul says, you're doing all that you do in love. Greet them. Let them know you care. And I think that's far enough on that. it's as simple as that. Greet them. Simple solution. Just like that one back in chapter 11 when uh, some people were getting drunk and uh, taking all the food when they had their, their love feast. Simple solution. Wait for each other. Here again, simple solution. Greet each other. In verse 21 and 22, up to this point, as was common in the day and was common for Paul, he was dictating this letter to someone who maybe had better handwriting than he had. If you write a letter to someone, maybe for some of us it would be 
a good idea to let somebody else do the writing so it can be legible. And that's what Paul did. But from verse 21 to the end, Paul takes the pen as a way of authenticating it so that they would know this actually was from Paul and to make it personal. He really did care about them. He wrote, verse 21, The greeting is in my own hand, Paul. Now, some may want to say, okay, Paul, you've signed your name. You better stop. Paul didn't stop. Look at verse 22. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Maranatha. What a way to end a letter, right? If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Now, that sounds awfully harsh. Sounds kind of unloving, doesn't it? And we're, we're told that by the world, that if we are threatening people, quote-unquote, with hell, we're not being loving. What is this? Why does Paul say this here? Well, this is actually a warning of something that is a very real danger. This was something that they needed to know. And this letter... He has addressed them as his brothers and sisters in Christ. But he knows that it's very possible that everyone who is associated with that body of believers may not all be believers. They need to test themselves. He says at the end of 2 Corinthians, his next letter to the same group of people came about a year later. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? Test yourselves. Now here's the test in 1 Corinthians. Do you love the Lord? Test yourself in that. Do you love the Lord? Is there a real relationship between you and God? Or are you, are you basing your eternal hope on something that you have done? Or are you basing your eternal hope on the group of people that you're associated with? Hanging around with Christians doesn't make you one. Having Christian parents doesn't make you one. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian. Jumping through some hoop that a preacher told you to jump through doesn't make you one. Is there a real relationship between you and Jesus? Is He in you? Do you love Him? Which would mean that you trust Him and Him alone. If you love Him, you know that there is nothing that anyone else can do for you for your salvation. Only Jesus. Because of His death on the cross for you, His resurrection from the dead. Do you love Him for that? Test yourself. Maranatha. This is a reminder that He's coming again. It could either be a, a prayer for Jesus to come. It could be a statement that he has come or a statement that 
He is coming again. And in the context, I think that one fits the best. He's coming. This is serious. Don't just assume that you are okay. Jesus is coming, and when he comes, the lost will be judged and condemned. Don't just assume. Test yourself. This is a loving warning from Paul. He doesn't want any of them to perish. Test yourself. Finally, last two verses, Paul verbalizes his love for them. He cares about them. As big of a thorn in the flesh as they have been to him, despite all the problems they have, all the immaturity that's there, Paul wanted to do everything that he did in love. And that's why he sent this letter. Verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Now this whole letter of all of these corrections of bad behavior, wrong thinking, this has not been a letter to put them in their place. Believe it or not, this is a love letter. He told them all these things because he loves them. The most loving thing we can do for anyone is to tell them the truth of God's word. Even when it stings, it's the best thing for everybody to know the truth. That's why Paul sent this letter. He loved them and he tells them that. At the end, a good way to end a hard letter He loved them, so he told them the truth. And that is why I desire to bring God's word to you each week. We need it. Even when it stings, it's what's best for us. We need it. So, Lord willing, we'll continue on next week in God's word. And for this morning, we are reminded again of that perfect example of God's love. That Jesus Christ gave of himself, sacrificed himself, let himself suffer for the good of others. We talked about that some last week, that that's what it means to be a man. That's what Jesus did. That's what it means to love. To be willing to give of ourselves, to suffer ourselves for the good of others. Now, Jesus left his disciples and all generations to follow the uh, command to observe communion over and over and over and over again because he knew that we are human and we forget. He knew that we are selfish and sometimes we start to think we deserve eternal life. So we need to be reminded over and over and over again of what it took for us to be able to be forgiven. To have eternal life. It took the death of the perfect Son of God. There was nothing that we could do. God had to do it Himself. There's nothing that we can add. God had to do it Himself.